Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Joseph Skursky. Now, Joseph is an enigmatic character. He's paces like a lion, so you're not going to get a video of him ever. And what he does is he helps the C-suite hire critical people. So, Joseph, would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your background and what qualifies you to do this critical role? I've been uh, doing consulting for about 20 years now. I use a particular uh, brand of assessments. I'll talk about those later. Uh, it's a three-part assessment. Uh, has incredible accuracy. And to date, I've uh, personally uh, seen over 10,000 of them, right? So I think at this point, I've got a little bit of a, a right to my opinion on, on certain things. But uh, hiring managers uh, frequently, in fact, I'm in the middle of several different projects at the moment for critical hiring. You know, the, the kind that... that um, if you get it right, everybody's going to be crazy happy. If you get it wrong, it's going to be costly and painful. You want me to help them build their dream team and avoid the pain. Okay. Well, let's start with the pain. What is the actual cost of a wrong hire? Depends on the role. But uh, what I've found is that uh, for sales, it's about three times their salary. For management, it's like five times. And I think that whenever, whenever you get to, to leadership, you know, we can be talking 10 times or more. It depends. Depends on how big the organization is. Do you mind um, if I challenge you always, on that? Yeah, go ahead. In an enterprise sales role, you could easily be losing 35 to 125 times salary. When you take into account lifetime customer value, the cost of all the marketing spend up front, the deals that they waste, the cost of sale, the referral business, upsell, cross-sell, all of that, and also the reputational damage. So at a surface level, it's three to five times. But the higher up in terms of the ticket price, the greater the cost. And the surface cost is three to five times. But you've got to be really careful that you recognize what the long-term, the long tail is in terms of those costs. Let me ask you a question in, in response. I'm mostly targeting uh, smaller, medium businesses. So, you know, below 500 employees, does that cross over? Because you're talking enterprise and that's, that's a lot bigger ticket. Well, small companies sell to enterprise. The cost of pursuit for an enterprise sale could easily go into $30,000, $40,000. And for a, a long, a significant pursuit, you can be going into seven, even eight figures. So, uh, you know, when, when you're starting to deal at that level, that's very expensive, but you, I, I would have thought at least 12 to 15 times would be a reasonable calculation. You know, if you keep a customer for three years, if you would typically expect to cross an upsell, you know, get at least one referral off them, then, you know, those costs add up, but they're all hidden costs. And that's the problem. Most people will calculate the obvious cost, but what they don't do is they don't calculate the hidden cost. Great point. So sorry about pushing back so early, but um, I, I, th I think it's a conversation. <laughs> I can take it. <laughs> I know. Well, you've got an Apache helicopter as your screensaver, so I'm pretty sure you're, you're tough enough. <laughs> yes, I can. Excellent. So we were talking about the cost of wrong hire, but um, let's look at the ripple effect. If you end up taking on a wrong salesperson, what is the knock-on effect on, in terms of the rest of the team? Holy smokes actually give you a specific analogy. I had a team, it was a great team overall. Whenever I got on board, we tripled revenue in the first four months, doubled it overall for the year. But I had one guy, very popular, right? Everybody loved him, but he was a troublemaker, right? Fortunately, I had uh, solid enough relationships with, with my top performers. They didn't jump ship. But this guy, you know, anybody that was coming on, you know, knew he was blowing him out because of his, his lousy attitude. You know, he's the, he's the guy at the water cooler. Yeah. <laughs> you just want to, right? So I ended up having to fire him because of his attitude. And I told him, you know, whenever, whenever I did, you know, because I take, you know, firing as seriously as, as I do hiring. I was like, man, I've talked to you about your attitude. You just won't change it. I don't think this is going to work. You, you need to get out of here. It was an unpleasant conversation, naturally. But uh, funny thing happened because um, at the same time, I think that was a Friday morning, Monday morning, I had someone in his seat, right? So it's a, a demonstration, right? Uh, basically a million words of um, you can be replaced just that easy, easily, right? You may be the most popular person. You may be doing, you know, okay on your quota, but if you've got a bad attitude, you're out of here. 
and I'll replace you just like that. Right. Never had to repeat that lesson, fortunately. <laughs> well, I, I suspect uh, that that sent a very strong message. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. If a picture's worth a thousand words, a demonstration's worth a thousand pictures. Right. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. I should be very, stealing very that. Okay. In terms of wrong hires on the impact that they have on managers, I'd like to explore that because my experience is that your average manager will spend their time trying to fix the sparrow with broken wings um, right. rather than um, identifying how to leverage their top performers to perform better and their B-plus players to become A players. To become and a, exactly. if they're spending all their time dealing with the weak or the disruptive, then they're distracted from that. So what advice would you give to managers who maybe have a mixed bag in their team? That's a real mindset shift, right? And, it, and it's, it's really dependent on the manager. What are they aiming for? And I'll tell you the reason why I ask, because from what I know, at least here in the States, uh, the average tenure of a VP sales is like 18 months. And every time that we've contacted them, you know, talking about, you know, hey, you know, how can we help you grow your sales team? They say, oh, you're a recruiter. Can you help me find my next gig? Holy, what? <laughs> you're thinking about your exit instead of taking your current team and <laughs> making them superstars? That's just a pathetic mindset. So what I would, what I would uh, recommend is, yeah, uh, spend that time figuring out, okay, I'm going to take a step back here because I get a similar, I get a similar question whenever I'm doing an assessment debrief, right? Somebody takes my assessment, they get it back and we're going through the, the hour and a half long session. And first question that I, that I get typically is what are my weaknesses? And in response, you know, I ask, well, why do you want to know? Mm-hmm. And typically the answer is, well, so that I can fix them. Here's the problem. Strengths and weaknesses, in my opinion, are, are a zero-sum game, right? If you try to fix that weakness, you're going to diminish your strength. I've talked to enough sports athletes to find out, you know, that if, if you're a right-hand, <laughs> I have one client uh, who played, this is just amazing, professional racquetball. I don't know who the heck goes to watch racquetball tournaments. <laughs> But uh, apparently it's a, it's a profession, but this, this gal uh, injured her, her right wrist uh, in the middle of the term, tournament, right? And had to finish the tournament playing with her, her left hand, right? It actually took her about six weeks to get back to her, her A game uh, after her right wrist healed because it messed up her footwork. Uh-huh. Right? So that's, that's, an ex- that's an example of taking a weakness, trying to fix it, right? And then actually killing your strength in the process. Same thing, I, I talked to a little league coach, but same, same difference, who was telling me about how so many parents want their kids to, to switch it. Yeah, he's right-handed batter, but I want him to be able to do both. And he said every time, every time that he actually gets that kid switch hitting, their, their strong game goes down. Interesting. Right? That makes sense? To get back to your question, then, you know, why are they trying to fix their weakness versus taking their strength to just like ridiculous levels. That's possible. It's so possible that your strength can be so strong that your weaknesses don't matter because you don't rely on them. Does that make sense? No, when I was running teams, spent time with, with, those, with those people who were performing or had the ability to perform better. Part of my talent is actually helping people perform to the, to the best of their, their ability, even their unknown ability. I know what it is. They don't. Right. And I help them get there. And I don't spend time with those people who are, who are just there, <laughs> present. It's really interesting because uh, what, what I discovered not too late in life, but uh, probably about 10 years ago, was that developing my strengths became a superpower and focusing on creating uh, a role around my strengths meant that everything I did, I did well. When I did it, time flew couldn't wait to do it again. And I got great feedback. And by mm-hmm. emphasizing the strengths and really building on those and finding people that I could bring around me who, whose strengths made my weaknesses irrelevant was a much better way of operating. And I think too often in management, what people are trying to do is um, make everybody right, but that almost never works. Yep. Agreed. 
Agreed. That's funny because uh, in a lot of cases, whenever whenever we're brought in to help a company hire somebody, you'll do these round robin interview type deals, and the thing that that inevitably happens is say, well, we like this candidate, but you know this thing just didn't really. We didn't like that. Okay, there's two parts to that. First of all, like typically happens because of behavioral similarities, right? So if you don't like somebody, it's because they're behaviorally different than you. Sometimes you need to get over yourself, and I'll tell you about that here in a minute. But the second thing is, whenever you're you're picking apart somebody uh, because they've got a particular weakness, the question is, does it apply to the role? Is it going to affect the role? That's right? a great question. Um, yeah, because okay, everybody's going to have a weakness. I mean, I, I've I've even you know spooled up clients to say, look, this person's going to come in. I'm going to I'm going to point out their super strength, and it is a super strength, right? It's not just like a regular old strength. This is like you know big time. Pay attention. And I'm going to tell you that in the interview, this is how it's going to go. And it may not be the, the most wordy uh, interview, and it may actually seem a little awkward in person at first, right? That's how this person is wired. That's just their behavioral style. Here's what they'll do whenever they get in the role. Now, you test them on this, right, and see what kind of an impact it has to your company. Really interesting. So if you're assessing an existing team, what do you tend to see? in terms of the impact and the influence that the manager has had in terms of hiring in their own image? Because you talked about the like. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, a funny thing, right? Because I've, I've actually seen that. In fact, not to name names, but um, uh, no, I'm actually not going to tell that story. Can you clap three times? <laughs> <laughs> tell me when we're off air. <laughs> yeah, it's... It's actually uh, pretty uncanny whenever you start finding people that, that um, in fact, I, I just had a recent example of this, where the manager had low self-esteem. And that's a pretty critical evaluation point for me. Self-esteem is that, that I factor from Sandler, right? Yeah. That this is, this is my, my worth. And that factor turns out to be more of an X factor in terms of the, the person's ability to produce. People getting hired on the team that also have low self-esteem. Right, we got a problem building here. You know, it's kind of like it's kind of like the manager who hires people who are not smarter than him, but are actually you know make make him look like the smartest guy in the room. That's a stupid thing to do. Oh Lord, right? absolutely crazy, colossally stupid. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, again, you got to get over yourself. Oh, I was going to tell you about that before. So, whenever I was running sales teams, I had a pretty big sales team. And we, we doubled revenue in like seven months. Went from fifth place out of six regions to first place. We're just killing them. I went to the, to the next one. And you know, like I, I mentioned before, we tripled revenue in four months. That's all fine and well. This is before I found assessments. <laughs> so my behavioral style, I'll just, I'll just come out with my hands up. My behavioral style is awkward in person, right? The first time <laughs> I, I make a half decent second impression. So <laughs> the thing is, whenever I was interviewing salespeople, I came to find out that if I, if I liked, getting back to that subject, if I liked that candidate, I'd inevitably have to fire them, right? However, if at about 45 minutes into the interview, I wanted to reach across the table and choke the life out of them because they weren't answering my questions, they were challenging my ego and they were talking too much, <laughs> that, that was my guy, <laughs> right? <laughs> that was the, the younger Joseph having to get over his own ego and his own behavioral preferences to realize that some of these people have crazy good ability. Right. And if I get out of my own way, I can let them run, just run wild and they'll do tremendous. Very interesting. How does. Hey, tell me if I'm sugarcoating anything here. Okay. No, no, no. I, I think you're just putting enough <laughs> vinegar in to keep me entertained and interested. So uh, tell me about how having a diverse team versus having uh, people with specific qualities and characteristics can affect the performance of a sales operation. Right. So, yeah, okay. Specific to sales, I think that I would prefer that they're, they're very, very similar. Um, although, I'll say this, uh, with that first team that I was mentioning, um, it, it was an, uh, a usage-based business model, right? So, in other words, the, the more the client used, the more they paid us. So, I had some people that, that we had hired in. They were just fantastic about picking up the phone. Whenever it came to account management, they were terrible, right? It's almost like 
bring it in, close the deal, move on, right? And other people, awesome at, at uh, you know, taking care of clients, right? <laughs> Could not sell to save their lives. So what we did is we actually split them up into hunter-farmer teams. We found out that, that one hunter could uh, take care of two farmers. So that balance, that was actually critical to that success that we had. Right? Without that, I'm certain that we would not have achieved what we did. Right? So in other teams, again, it depends on what the function is. You know, is it, you know, 100% we're hunters all day long? Then you do want them to be similar. Make sense? Yeah. Experience has taught me that if we tend to recruit people who have a very similar mindset, uh, very similar backgrounds, then often we can lack perspective. So you look at what happened to the CIA before 9-11. They had no Arabic speakers, and uh, one Arabic speaker and no Farsi speakers. So they really didn't have the perspective to understand what Al-Qaeda was uh, up to, even though they were listening in. So the net result was they didn't have the cultural reference. And I'm just curious, um, when, when you're advising boards on how to build their teams, whether or not culture and uh, diversity ever plays a part, because customers will be quite varied in uh, many markets. I guess it will depend on the market, but I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. Sure. I'm going to say this because I've got a colleague who's into uh, diversity and inclusion training. I don't look at that. I don't really care what the race is. I don't care what the, the cultural uh, background is or anything like that. I'm looking for the talent specifically. My bias is actually toward talent. Okay. In fact, in some cases, I don't even look at the, look at the resume because I want, to, I want to know what talent capabilities they have. Resume, CV is basically a marketing document and mostly a work of fiction anyway. So the, the, <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's not a reliable source of truth. When you talk about talent, and let's put this very much squarely into the sales and sales management kind of arena. What are the yep. talents that you are looking for? And let's start with the hunter role, because let's face it, that's the, uh, the glamour position. So let's start sure. with that. What, what are you looking for when it comes to talent in that kind of role? There's a couple of things. And whenever they, whenever they line up uh, between the assessments, I'm just going to mention a couple of terms here. And you know, pardon the, the jargon, I'm a consultant. One is uh, what we call practical thinking. It's the doing talent. Whenever it is like really, really high, uh, and especially if it's you know number number one of the of the three external uh, dimensional talents, I find those people to be fantastic individual contributors. Whenever that is supplemented with on the, their values, uh, high economic, which isn't necessarily about you know just the money, but results. Results orientation. So those two are now lining up in combination. That actually makes it like a, a stronger than death type uh, getting it done person, right? If by some chance, right, that's also uh, supplemented with a behavioral style that has a, a getting it done kind of kind of pattern, you've got a superstar in your hands, you know. And I've had that happen actually multiple times where uh, you know I've had a client come to us saying, you know, hey, I want to hire you know a salesperson, right? And we put a couple of people in front of them and they ended up hiring two, <laughs> right? They had no intention of doing that up front, but whenever they saw, you know, how, how well we can align that talent, they're like, holy smokes, I've never seen talent like this, you know, like in, in a, a small collective group. <laughs> I've talked to two other, uh, two other recruiters that in their, their 25 plus years experience have seen that once. We've seen it three times when you're, Focus, laser focused on the talent, and it pays off. Absolutely. But then it also requires managers who can get the best out of that talent. So That's right. we're looking yeah. at the, uh, the, the management side. When you are hiring that prodigious talent, what do you need to make sure the manager's qualities are? And if they lack them, do you sometimes have to replace the manager in order to allow the talent to flourish? My first preference is actually to coach them, find out if they are coachable, if I can you know, help open their eyes to, to what they're, they're working with. And I've done that for a lot, a lot of years. Um, it's interesting. My longest client, we used to, to sit down and talk about how to help this one person develop. And I'll, I'll give a specific example here in a second. But it's interesting because you're kind of like playing 3D chess. 
I have to communicate to him in terms that he understands how to communicate to that person in terms that they understand, right? So that they can, they can, you know, elevate themselves. Right. Yeah. Longest client, semi-custom home builder. Whenever I was introduced to them, it was because they had taken a field superintendent and elevated him basically to VP construction. So for 15 years, he's been building stuff. Now he has to build people, except he doesn't know how to build people, right? His behavioral style, like mine, you know, which I, I think his uh, actually maybe just a little more gruff. I think he makes a half decent third impression. <laughs> but uh, he was just killing his people. They were they were leaving. They were walking out, walking off the job, right? So they brought me in because you know our behavioral styles are so similar that we can talk the same language, right? And I can go toe to toe with him and just say, hey, knock that off. Right. Eventually, and it took about three years now. I mean, this isn't this isn't a cakewalk type process. And I'm talking, you know, three years of every Friday morning, we're spending an hour to an hour and a half together with one of his people. I'm evaluating him. I, I'm sitting there with the the president of the company and the VP construction, and you know, he's dealing with one of his superintendents, and we're finding out, you know, what he's thinking beforehand, before the the conversation, just observing and not interrupting at all during it, right? And then debriefing it and saying, all right, did you see this? Did you see that, right? And eventually he was coming around. Funny thing, in about three years, almost everybody was coming to him, right? With their, with their, their problems, their challenges, their, their whatevers, right? Oh, interesting. Because he was getting it, he was getting it. That's a huge investment. I mean, you're talking about 720 hours of investment in yep. a month. So for those yeah. of you who are listening, recognize that if you've got people who are capable and competent, you need to be ready to put in that kind of investment and you need to sustain it. It's not, you know, there's no such thing as magic dust in changing people's performance and helping them achieve their fullest potential. So again, let's take it up a notch to the leadership level. What are the kind of conversations that you have to have with leadership so that they, first of all, recognize that recruitment is the single most important function of any leader and any manager, and that their second most important function is getting the best out of the people that you hire? How do you have those conversations with them so that they uh, approach it with a grown-up attitude and they're not in a hurry to try and, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am? Yeah, I actually have a story for that. So our largest client, probably about three years ago, they were hiring a CEO. It's not a huge client. They're like 550 employees, something like that, $300 million. But nevertheless, they're hiring a CEO. Now they're hiring a CEO because two years prior, they hired a president against my advice. I said, you can hire this person, but make them a VP ops, not the president right away. Well, they didn't listen. They made him the president right away. Uh, so now they're hiring a CEO to fire, basically fire the president. They were you know, putting their... Uh, CEO candidates through the assessments and asking me to, to do written reviews on them. I found this one fellow. I'm like, this, so I'm seeing over and over again, this person is manipulative and he's all about appearances. And if you hire him, this is a second generation company at the moment. And I know that the third generation is actually uh, in the workforce right now, getting groomed to take over. There will not be a third generation ownership here. Right. Right. So that earned me a conference call with the, the board of directors to explain myself. During that call, right, I asked them a bunch of different questions about how they went about interviewing, which they, they did very poorly. Funny thing about board members, right? They feel a constant need to, to justify their existence, right? So each one of them had to ask you know, highly intelligent interview questions, except they all sacrificed their objectivity. Every single one of them was subjective, which means that all kinds of stuff was happening right before their eyes. They didn't see it. Anyway, one of the things that, uh, you know, it was almost like, banging their shoe on the table saying that they wanted this next person to be very strategic, right? Well, I have that as one of the uh, evaluation points in my assessment, but I've seen that uh, fail terribly, right? Another client uh, who's a a VP of marketing and sales, uh, he was very strategic. And for his glorious title, uh, he didn't have a team that would follow him. He was no leader. Right. Right. You can be incredibly strategic, very smart. Everybody, you know, knows that, hey, this cat, you know, can call the, call the ball, you know, from two years out. And it'll actually go exactly where he said, but no one will follow you across the street, right? 
that's yeah. a bad place to be. So what I was actually focused on, I'm, I'm listening to them. I'm saying they need to, to find somebody strategic. Okay, fine. But one of the other evaluation points we have is um, the ability to, to connect and relate to other people, right? That, that is my super talent. And what I mentioned before about elevating people to their higher, highest levels of, of performance, even if it's unbeknownst to them, what that capability is. So what I was thinking and the argument that I proposed is that we actually find somebody who has that talent as the CEO, because if they do, they can find that person who's strategic and they can help elevate them to like crazy strategic, right? They can find that person who's that individual contributor or fantastic at uh, tactical execution and elevate them to higher levels of tactical execution. Right? And oh, by the way, in those people who actually also are supposed to be developing others, he can elevate them to develop others at better levels. That's the person that they settled on. Fortunately, they listened to me because I told my wife on the way out there, if they don't this time, I'm going to triple my rate next time. So I pay attention. But that, that is the thing that I look for uh, in leaders is their ability to connect with other people and elevate their performance on purpose. Right? I find too many teams actually that, and I'll just I'll kind of backtrack just a little bit. Whenever we're talking about uh, the, the culture of the team, they actually, without, without forethought, build diverse teams. I'm talking about diversity in thought, right? Not diversity in any other, in other, yeah. any other capacity, just thought. But they don't do it on purpose. They do it because they liked the person right, from the interview. Right? Yeah. And then end up having internal conflicts on the back end of that. Now, um, so, I mean, you know, we pay attention to that whenever we're, we're advising uh, somebody, hey, listen, this person actually lines up, you won't have uh, many conflicts. Now, if you actually want to create some kind of diverse thought where we're seeing things from different perspectives, not a terrible thing. That's great. Do it on purpose. Know what you're doing going into it. Right. I'm yeah. not looking for, you know, happy, happy little accidents here. I'm looking for something that was deliberate. We're deliberately everybody lines up or we're deliberately everybody has a different opinion. But be deliberate either way. Very interesting. OK, so we've talked about the golden child of new business. And now what I'd like to and I'm deliberately using the language here I, in terms of an account growth manager, because I, I think account management is largely in many cases about zookeeping rather than about cultivating those accounts. So when you are looking for an account growth manager, what are the core qualities that you're looking for there? That's a great question. One major thing is building and maintaining relationships, right? Because without that, they're going to fail, massively fail. You've got some people you mentioned it before, wham, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Um, that person is not going to be the, the right fit in that role, right? You got to have somebody, you know, who can go in and, and not just not just establish, you know, a, a one-person relationship. Chances are they're going to have to have multiple relationships within that company in order to retain them as a client and grow them as a client. And so it's all about relationship. If they don't have it, sorry. Another quality that I see lacking in many account managers is they're probably very high in people-pleasing, and they are very low in terms of directing and being ready to challenge or get into conflict. And I see this very mm -hmm. often where account managers or e even new business salespeople are reluctant to go out of their point of uh, initial point of contact. So in technology, they sell into IT and they're afraid to sell into other parts of the business. So... What are the qualities that you're looking for there to ensure that somebody has the aptitude and the talent and the, the willingness as well to go into other parts of the and other lines of business? Yeah, it's a great question. And we've seen those. We've seen candidates come through that, you know, I've advised the, the hiring manager, listen, this person is like so all about serving that I really think they would be better um, suited to a customer service role. Uh, they're, they're too empathetic if you will, you know, which means that they can't challenge. I've got a specific indicator that says that, um, you know, if they're like too empathetic and they have this one emotional bias, whenever they go out, I'll talk to the, to the prospect customer or whatever, and they say, ah, we don't have the budget. And so rep comes back to boss and says, yeah, they don't have the budget. A sale was made, right? It just went the wrong direction. 
<laughs> there is a rule in every sales interaction. A sale always happens. Either they buy from you or you buy from them. That, I think, is what Joseph was referring to. Okay. And again, the more sophisticated, the more complex the sale, the more important it is that um, these people are good planners. They're well-organized. Now, often salespeople are not known for their organization. So again, what are the what, what are the indicators that someone actually has the ability to plan and think strategically, put together territory plans, account plans, pursuit plans, opportunity plans? I think I know what you're referencing because um, I've seen that actually in a lot of different organizations. Uh, in fact, one of my current clients, I vehemently disagree with the the one market president who thinks that the only good salespeople are extroverts. Right. Because Crazy. he is an extrovert. Yeah. So naturally, that's what he would think, right? And he and I kind of go ahead uh, head to head. I don't like him very much. But uh, what I've found, and it really depends on, on the type of role, right? An extrovert, if you're in a, a hunter environment, yeah, I, I would get it. I would, I would agree with that. Which means, you know, that they're probably going to, to you know, really suck at their paperwork and filling out the CRM and stuff like that. But it's one of those things that you got to take because they do their job so well otherwise. But the more uh, consultative or complex sales, what I've found is that it's not an extrovert. It's actually an, an ambivert, three quarters, uh, you know, extrovert, three quarters introvert, whichever, or just frankly, an introvert. I know it sounds nuts, right? Except introverts will listen. They'll listen to the customer. And you think about it, especially in a consultative sale. That's what they want. They want to know that somebody else is, is listening to them, paying attention, collaborating, finding a solution for them, right? Yeah. We definitely look at that uh, through the, the deeper levels of the assessment. We have actually created uh, what I call a DNA model. So we've got one for, for hunters, farmers, consultative, complex sales, uh, and you know different categories in each one that, that measures specific things to find out if they're going to be a, a rock star or just so-so. So I want to go into my particular favorite area, which uh, again mm-hmm. is often viewed as the gingerhead, bastard, ugly stepdaughter of direct sales, which is the channel. When you've been assessing uh, channel managers and channel chiefs, what are the qualities of the outstanding ones that you look for in terms of talent? I've not done uh, any channel specific roles. Okay. If I was going to, yeah, right, I would probably liken it to more of the, the complex sales model. Yeah. That ability to maintain multiple relationships with an account and to, to be building value as they go, because, you know, I mean, you got to figure, I know that everybody's after the, the bottom line, but they have to be selling themselves, which means they have to relate to the other person. The other person has to relate to them. Otherwise, it's going nowhere. It's just a lot of, a lot of happy talk. Again, I think if you look at the channel function, they could be wearing any of 15 different hats by 11.30 on Monday. Again, when I look at people who are really good at driving discretionary effort internally, that's another key quality that I would look for for someone transitioning from direct into indirect sales. Because what's really important, and again, I I see this in enterprise as well, if you are not able to marshal your own internal resources, then you're really going to struggle. And I think I'd be really curious to find out what are the key qualities and what do those talents look like? How do they manifest themselves when you're looking for a candidate, particularly where you're dealing with complex high-ticket sales? The two primary requirements, actually, for a complex sales DNA is going to be to build and maintain relationships. I mentioned that before. If they can't do that, if they come in, we've got a, we've got a four-point scale here, right? Below average, average, above average, and excellent right out of the out of the park. If they come in below average in either of these first two categories, uh, we don't even consider them. So building and maintaining relationships, absolutely critical. The second thing is to be able to so- solve complex problems. Right. If they can't do that, they're not going to succeed in the role. That right? makes We look at, at a few other things. One is uh, resiliency. Now, that's more critical in a sales hunter role. And actually, that's one of those, those two uh, required fields for hunters, because if they're not resilient as a hunter, they're not going to be in sales very long. Right? So 
below average, I, 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 won't, even, I won't even look at their, their resume. The remaining three are qualifying. Even in a complex sale, I mean, you've got to be continually qualifying. Are these, are these people actually, do they have their heads in the game? Are they looking at something else? What's going on? Right? What I'll call self-management, which is, <laughs> I think you said, uh, 15 different hats by 1130 on Monday. So they, they've got to know which hat needs to be on right now in this situation, right? And where I need to be going next. The final thing is solution selling. So after, after they identify and, and, and you know, create that solving the, the complex problem, then they've got to sell the solution. Right? That, Without that, nothing's, nothing's happening. Okay. That's really interesting because, uh, again, you know, as I listen to you, the subtleties of the different role functions and the predictive indicators really do need to be paid attention to. So let's look at job design using what you know about the sales DNA. When you're advising your clients to put together hiring templates and the interview process uh, in order to uncover the must-have sales DNA qualities, what does that process look like internally? Because I, I think too many people approach recruitment as if it's something that anyone can do well. And just chatting to people about getting uh, whether you're going to give them a job. And given that it is the single most important function in any business, then you can't afford to make mistakes because it's at the design phase that I think a lot of problems occur. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, one of the things that... Um that I try to steer my clients toward, some of them take it, some of them don't, are key accountabilities. Typically those uh, five to you know, possibly eight things that uh, are, are specific, measurable, and time-bound. It's like a smart goal type thing. You know, it says, hey, you've got to increase this territory 33% in the first six months or whatever, right? as, a, as an example. I'm throwing out a number. But whenever you stick to those things, now you're paying attention to what's really important about the, the individual. That performance. By the way, whenever uh, you, you get really serious about the key accountabilities, then that starts to shape where like, your advertising and you know, everything else is. Uh, and believe it or not, while it raises the bar, it takes the um, anything less than A players out of the game. They won't throw their hat in the ring because they know that they can't perform like that. I see a lot of, a lot of uh, ads that don't have really a, a whole heck of a lot uh, to do with the day-to-day Here's what you're going to be expected to do. And I have a tendency to ask hiring managers anyway, what would you fire this person for? It's a question that most, I don't think I've found one yet, it's actually thought about that in advance, right? But if they right. hire the person, then they find that they're getting frustrated, you know, and now I'm going to fire you. Well, you should have thought about that beforehand and kind of qualified for it, you know? That's a fabulous question. I should be stealing that. So talk me through the candidate hiring profile design process then. Can I take you one other thing before we go there? Yes, please. Okay, first of all, I think that on both sides of, of the, the issue here, uh, that both hiring managers and candidates step into this formal recruiting or interviewing mode, they forget what they're actually there to accomplish. And I'll give you an example. Whenever I was running teams, I was, I was running inside sales teams. And so... In inside sales, your success is highly dependent on the person at the other end picking up the phone, right? If they don't pick up the phone, you're not going to make a lot of sales. Whenever I was going through the interview process, uh, what I would do, you know, go ahead and do the phone interview first, bring them in, understand they're talking, and uh, like right at the last minute, I would have my assistant like be on cue with this 25 minutes into the interview, come in, interrupt me, and say, Joseph, I need you out here immediately. Yeah. So on the way out the door, I'm saying, hey, thanks for coming in. Give me a call. Right, like talk to you again. This is inside sales. Yeah. What I'm looking for is that they call and they leave me a, a voicemail, a creative one, right? Yeah. And then they call again. I guarantee they will get my voicemail two times, at least, and probably three times. And they better not sound the same, and they better not be boring. Mm-hmm. Hi, Joseph. This is so and so. Here's my number. No, I'm not calling you back, man. You're you got to demonstrate to me. That you are, you get the inside sales game. If you don't, you're not going to succeed here. And so I, I kind of, I wish that more uh, hiring managers would actually have their people demonstrating 
what success looks like by the way that they approach things. Well, I want to build on that. And we'll come back to my other question in a minute. My interview process when I'm running a campaign is they have to leave me a message that makes me want to respond either via email or LinkedIn. And if they don't, I just Mm -hmm. ignore it. And if they have done, then I set them another task, which is to leave me a message give me a call and leave me a message that makes me want to call you back. And they can leave as many messages as they like, because like you, I often won't respond on the first one. And I want to see them demonstrate that skill. Then when they're in front of me, I make it very clear to them. So we introduce the process, which is a four-interview process. Don't care care whether you're a graduate or a veteran. I want lots of exposure to you. I want to see you in different circumstances. And then we explain the offer so that we get that out of the way. No point waiting to talk about the offer and disguise that. Let's get that out of the way at the beginning, because then we can qualify each other out. And then it's over to you, Joseph. And I want to see you sell to me. I want to actually see that you can sell. I want to see you do proper diagnosis. I want to see that you do proper discovery. I want to see how you respond under pressure. I want to see that your questions are insightful and intelligent. And they deliver value to me. Because if you don't make it past that first interview, you're going to do this when you're in front of a customer. It's just crazy not to do that. You're hiring them for a sales role, for God's sake. Yep. Yeah, I I hate the, I don't know if this ever happened to you, sell me this pen. It's stupid. Yeah, that's 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 done. A job interview is nothing more than a sale. It is. It's funny. I was working with a, a client and um, we had, had interviewed a bunch of candidates for this role. And um, the one guy, uh, he just stood out to me amongst the rest of them. And I said, uh, listen, you're going into this interview. I want you to, to not think about it like an interview. I want you to treat it like a sales call, right? Because it is. <laughs> and the funny thing is, whenever uh, he got done, the company president called me back and he was like, that was the crazy coolest interview I've ever done. <laughs> He was interviewing us and finding out what our problems were and how he was going to present a solution. <laughs> awesome. He followed my advice. But you know what? Most, most salespeople just aren't going to do that. Most salespeople are order takers. Yeah. They're, they're, they're not really salespeople. I love the profession dearly, and I use the term profession loosely, but it strikes me that we really, really have to up our game. We've got to be more discerning in who we bring into our sales operations. And I agree completely. We have to elevate the bar because, you know, if we had real salespeople, they wouldn't need to do stupid shit like be transactional, pitch product. They wouldn't need to race to a demo or uh, knock out a proposal without doing qualification. They would do a proper job. And then they wouldn't be the pariah that uh, our reputation has now created, that 30% of business-to-business buyers want a seller-free experience, for goodness sake. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. That's an indictment on management that have let those people in. You know, I think a lot of of so-called strategic marketers have kind of shot uh, salespeople in the foot uh, in the sense of, you know, well, let's just do the free, you know, the freemium type thing. You know, everything is free, free, free. Everybody wants everything is free. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sorry, but that's, that's, that's foolishness. I agree in comping some things in certain circumstances, but whenever that's your entire, like, opening dialogue with somebody, I guess it's just foolishness. I want to tell you another, another story about a demonstration uh, type, type interview. So I hired this one guy. He, um, well, I was interviewing him, and he was asking me, uh, what, what, what are your biggest problems here? Uh, which I thought was a great question for a sales guy in an interview. So, well, you know, truthfully, the guy previous to me had done like a monthly special, right? So whatever the special is. And so I said, these kids have one closing model, and that is time's running out. You got to get in today to get the special, right? Pathetic. Anyway, but so I said, as a result, the last two days of the sales month are basically a heart attack on a stick because that's when like 50% of the revenue comes out. Yeah. Right. I did the same thing with him that I always do. Hey, thanks for coming in. Give me a call. He called voicemail, called voicemail. Then he called me the second to last day of the month. He actually uh, acted like a, like a customer who was irate and needed to speak to a manager right now. 
<laughs> Whenever I picked up the picked up the phone and anticipating a hot hot conversation, he goes, "Hey, Joseph, it's Greg. Come in on Monday. You're hired." <laughs> <laughs> Found the source of my pain, right, and played to it. That was really brilliant. I like that. I love innovative sellers, and uh, you <laughs> know, selling is a genuinely creative act, and it it's a cerebral act. You're not just churning out dials. If you're not relevant, timely, contextually appropriate, uh, offering value, you've got no right to be there. I'm running a whole bunch of interviews at the moment with CEOs, CMOs, CFOs, COOs, and without exception, every one of them says that they want the salesperson to be their partner. They want the salesperson to challenge them. They want the salesperson to deliver value early on in the conversation that disrupts their current preferences. They want them to stand apart by how they behave, the quality of their question and the quality of their conversation. Mm. And uh, I've interviewed seven so far in a row, and every one of them, without exception, has made those uh, observations and those uh, requests because they're they're begging for it because their time is wasted constantly by people and salespeople getting in the way of the sale. Salespeople not navigating and multi-threading the sale so that they do their housekeeping research. By the time they speak to them, if they're coming back to speak to them, then they're informed and they're delivering real value. Let's mm-hmm. come back to that, um, that design process. Talk me through the process that you take your clients through when you're helping them to design a hiring template. So, um, yeah, first thing, you know, I, I assess the boss, I assess the team. I don't want to find out, you know, first of all, caliber of the boss. Because um, this, sorry to say, but uh, it's true. I've had some clients that um, I, I knew that I couldn't put a thoroughbred, I couldn't put an A player or an A-plus uh, player in front of them because that person would leave. I hate to say it, but, you know, I mean, that's just that's just a fact. So I can only, best I could give them was a B player, uh, which I really, really uh, dislike doing. But I've got to do it. In some cases, I assess the team to find out what the culture is. Also, uh, what's what's the makeup of the top performer in that team, and why is that? And so then I'll take that and kind of look for for similar uh, qualities in candidates. From there, you know, it's, it's going back to to those key accountabilities or the reasons that, that you would fire somebody. You know, with some combination of the, of the two to come up with. And this is complex. It's not easily uh, stated uh, so that, that it could be understood just over the phone, but um, I look for certain certain patterns within the assessments and within the, the combination of the three assessments that come up with, you know, here's here's the person that I actually out to fit the, the bill for you. In some cases, you know, I'll provide them with uh, specific interview questions. Sometimes I actually tweak those to the candidate even. Right. Right. So that if there's something that's just a little bit off, you know, this could be a deal killer, but we don't know yet. So let's ask the question this way and find out if it actually is a deal killer. Hmm. Okay. So in terms of briefing and working with recruiters, because let's face it, they're not always the brightest light in the house. How do you make sure that recruiters are bringing you A players? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, most recruiters don't like me. I'll, I'll just tell you up front. Uh, I keep them honest, and sometimes they don't like that. Yep. Right. The, story, the story that I was going to tell you a half hour ago, you're asking about hiring managers and how, you know, so many of their, their people might come in looking like them. Uh, I had a recruiter that that's exactly what the deal was. Every single candidate had a similar behavioral profile to this person, which was a unique profile, right? You know, there's, there's bias, there's emotional bias in that. Mostly if we're dealing with any recruiters, uh, it's an arm's length relationship and they know that, that I'm going to be scrutinizing every candidate uh, fairly. I'll, I'll do it equally across the board. Right. But I will be scrutinizing, I think. And I've, and I've had a couple of relationships like this where um, the, the client company actually brought me in to kind of like oversee the recruiter so that I would keep them honest. So that they would be bringing me you know, people that, that I get to scrutinize and say, yeah, you want to pay attention to this one? You want to run away from that one? It takes a lot of time. OK, Joseph, we've come to the top of the hour, sadly. I could talk to you for hours and hours because recruitment is something <laughs> that is so vital. Tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and you could go back and advise your 23-year-old idiot self 
What one choice bit of advice would you tell him that you know he'd have probably ignored? You know, I, I've thought about that a lot, uh, actually a lot lately, and I would take significantly more risks. I'm naturally fairly bold about certain things, conservative about, about other things, but I would take far more risks. These days, and this, this is a funny thing, Marcus, so 2020 for most people was a crappy year. Oh, um, our business grew 40. Yeah, our, our business grew 46%. I felt incredibly blessed with that. I got into a mode where I decided that I was uh, going to acquire existing businesses. And it was funny because there were two that came up. And the one I could have had for a song here locally in Florida. And uh, I walked away from it. It just smelled funky. And there was a, a second one, very low uh, cost of entry. But I also walked away from that because the leader was, um, I'll say maniacal. I think I'm going to be kind and leave it at that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the, um, the thing is, um, I just recently acquired another business that's set to get uh, kicked off here within about uh, three weeks to a month. I would be far more bold, take more risks. I think that's the, the only regret I've ever had is that, you know, sometime I've been swimming upstream and when I didn't need to. You know, and you know, some of it is the the uh, mental limitations inherited from from parents. You know, this just isn't possible, or whatever. And you know, I say, you know, that's that's a load of crap. Find what's possible. There's a solution somewhere. Somebody knows how to get this done. I don't well, find that somebody. And that I think is the most valuable question that I've learned over the years. I always used to think why was the one, but actually, it's who. Um, Ooh, yep. There's an exercise that I, I do with my teams, and it's a scavenger hunt. And you describe some something or someone, and you say, "Right, work the room, go off and uh, try and uh, get referred." And what I've only ever had it happen once, where someone came up to me and said, "Well, you obviously know who you've got in mind. Who would you refer?" And the problem is that people don't ask themselves the obvious question, which is, who is the person most likely to know the answer to that? Yep. And that, that for me, has been a real eye-opener. And that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast. In the last two years, I have been exposed to over 4,000 collective years of experience. And I cannot even begin to tell you. I thought I knew a lot before, and I was blighted by my own self uh, sense of uh, self-importance. Uh, but I've got to be honest with you, the last two years I have learned more than in the previous 30 years combined. And I've been Amazing. an avid consumer of information and book, you know, 800 books in the last eight years. But speaking to people who know their stuff has been just fantastic. And that was a, a risk initially because I was worried that I'd look stupid and frankly, honestly, don't care. I can ask the dumbest question. And if I look stupid, I can always edit it out if I really, if my ego is that tight. <laughs> but sure. it's really important to take risks and put yourself in harm's way. And I think we need to do difficult work. We need to surrender the outcome. We need to put ourselves in a place where we say no to the stuff that isn't important. And we say yes to the stuff that could take us to the next level that can advance yep. us. I see so many people holding themselves back, being constrained by the prison between their ears. I agree with that. I agree with that a hundred percent, which I rarely do. But uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm the type. I'm fiercely independent, and so asking the who question was never really like part of my my arsenal, if you will. Yeah, me too. But. Lately, I, you know, I've just had, had a shift in, in my mindset. I mean, I just told you I, I acquired a second business. I'm looking to acquire a third one by the end of the year. It's just funny. You know, I'm, my old age, I guess I'm getting bolder to the point you may have to edit this out. But, uh, you know, my wife sometimes is asking me, did you just say that to that client? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, unafraid to step into anything, not because I'm going to edit it out, because I'm going to tackle it, whatever it is. You know, oh, yeah, it's, it's the uncomfortable subject in the room. Let's talk about it. Nobody else wants to. I'll throw it down on the table. Now let's go. Well, if right? there's a turd in the room, you need to talk about it, not roll it in glitter. And you know, the, the, exactly. the problem is that most people will avoid conflict. And actually, conflict avoidance is a huge handicap. 
uh, also uh, not knowing how to say no. A pal of mine, Michael Brody Waite, does leadership training. And um, one of the masks, he says, that uh, leaders wear is the inability to say no. And it costs them, on average, 31 hours a month. Now, if you can't confront oh, when somebody when, well, when somebody says, can I have a moment of your time and you can't say no, and be ready for the constructive conflict, then you're just giving away time. So you end up working 17, 21-hour days. It's madness. So, Joseph, tell me this. If you could advise people to read, watch, listen to great content around the subject of hiring, onboarding, which we didn't touch on, but we'll talk about that on another podcast. Hiring, onboarding, recruiting, retention, people development, using assessments. What would you advise people to pay attention to in terms of content? And who would you advise them to follow? Well. To me, it's kind of paying attention to the end game. A colleague of mine uh, named Mark Herbert uh, just recently did a podcast with a um, partner of his, and I can't remember his name. His first name is Jeffrey, and he's actually in, in UK there. But they talk about uh, just how critical trust is uh, in the organization. I found that to be true. I've got a, a client, North American company, and uh, the previous regime is um, I'm working, I'm coaching, I'm actually coaching uh, the president. and. Um, coach everybody because if, if they don't have their head in the game all the time, I don't have patience for that. But his predecessor was a control freak, micromanaged everything. Everybody just kind of kept their heads ducked down. And if they had to do anything, they had to, to ask permission. And so he's got a bunch of little, you know, just scared people. And he is the exact opposite. His, his intention is to empower everybody. You live up to your full potential. Let me help you get there. Right. Uh, which is really cool. So, you know, we're working on establishing that culture of trust. It's not easy whenever you've been whipped for 15 years yeah. by some guy who's a jackal, right? And I've, I've actually met that guy, and he is a jackal. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we helped him find a new, uh, new career opportunity. That's the thing. Think about the end game. Do you inspire trust in your people from your people, right? Because if you don't, I don't, I don't give a crap what you're doing with recruiting. It's not going to work. It's not going to work for long, right? Well, people, people uh, you know, see below the surface quickly. And if they're having to put up with uh, you saying one thing and doing another, yeah, they're going to judge you by your actions. Tell me this. What, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? <laughs> how, to, how to manage all my time with some of the opportunities that are coming up. And uh, like I said, we, we grew like crazy last year. And as soon as we turned the corner here into January, it just it just popped again, uh, and it's popping right now. That's the biggest thing is me managing my time. I've got a client who is trying to get me to to give him written reviews at no charge. It's like, dude, my time is at a premium right now. You can't do that. I won't negotiate that. That's fair. Uh, are you calendar blocking? Yes. Oh yes. Okay. Okay. Are you? prioritizing top three, top five most important activities that will get you at least 80% of where you want to get to? I do. I do. I learned a long, long time ago, actually, uh, this is probably like 20 years ago, um, that whenever it comes to some of the tasks that I need to accomplish, I put them on the calendar because if they're not in the calendar, they're not going to get done, right? And sometimes you've got to shift those priorities. Sometimes the top three that, you know, that were yesterday aren't the top three today, right? It might be a new, a new top one or a new top three. Entirely. Try to stay on top of that. <laughs> Marcus, I have I have three four foot by three foot whiteboards. Right. right to, to manage everything that's going on. Very good. Well, you certainly sound a lot more organized than me. So how can people get hold of you, Joseph? LinkedIn. I get a lot of contacts on, on LinkedIn. I have a, a very large network there. I think it's whatever whatever the Thing is LinkedIn forward slash in forward slash Joseph Skirsky. My corporate website, marketleadersolutions.com. Or you know, send, send me an email to uh, joseph at marketleadersolutions.com. Excellent. Joseph Skirsky, thank you. Hey, thank you, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation useful, insightful, helpful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And 
if you think you're going to be a good guest or you know someone who would be, who'd be interesting, then please ping me an email or uh, DM me at marcus at laughs-last.com. And if you're the owner or CEO of a technology company in the 10 to 50 million mark, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real sustainable hypergrowth without the wheels coming off, with a highly engaged and highly productive workforce, and clients who stick with you year after year and bring their wealthy friends, then let's schedule time for a brief conversation. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.